the one thing that we need to make sure that, you know, we're ready is to be forgiven. You know, our greatest need, my greatest need, I don't know about you, but my greatest need in life is to be forgiven of my sins. You know, maybe there's some of you here today that on your way in to church, you sin. Huh? Uh, maybe some of you guys were arguing this morning at home and then you, you know, we get out of the car, we didn't know how to put on the happy face or whatever, you know. M- maybe, maybe yesterday, you know, you blew it or sometime this week and the enemy's coming with accusation and condemnation and he's telling you, why do you even bother going to church service? Or why would you even step up to serve God, man? Because you're all messed up. And, and the, this, the beautiful thing that we know is that being a Christian, when you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you are forgiven. You're forgiven. And this is a, our lesson for today. And there's other things in this that are so beautiful to see that when you know you're forgiven and it lifts that burden, I, I like what Stephen Chris Chapman said. He, he said, basically, he said, we run through these fields of forgiveness and grace. It's then, man, that we can be all that God calls us to be. But it's a battle to get there. Uh, today, when we look at our study, we're going to study John 8, verses 1 through 11. We're going to see uh, uh, the woman caught in adultery. We're going to see these uh, self-righteous religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees. I believe underneath it all, you're going to see the devil and his demons, who really the devil is the ultimate accuser. and and But yet, the one that highlights the, the whole story is Jesus himself. And we're going to see a few things about Jesus. Number one, he's our faithful teacher. Our faithful teacher. Number two, he's our wise judge. Number three, he's our gracious savior. And then number four, we'll see he's the holy one. But let's read the whole thing and then we'll come back and we'll break it down. We'll actually start in John chapter 7 in verse 53. Notice what it says. It says, and everyone went to his own house. But, and there's a contrast here, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now, early in the morning, he came again into the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. What a beautiful story. Uh, You know, there are some out there, unfortunately, in Christendom who try to take this story out and they'll tell you, you know, it doesn't belong. 
But really, when you look at the Textus Receptus, when you look at the Greek manuscripts, the ones that are solid, you're going to find that it, it is exactly where it belongs. Uh, some manuscripts will place it in different places, and some will even omit it. But isn't that just like the devil? To try to take away a story of the glory of Jesus and the way that he forgives us? But what we find, it belongs right here. And it's a beautiful example of who Jesus is. You know, we read even in verse 53 that everyone went to his own house. Remember the backdrop here. Jesus is, you know, having these uh, confrontations with the religious leaders who just want him to die. They want him gone. And so after, you know, they're going back and forth, it says that they went to their own house. But Jesus, uh, contrast here, clearly intended, went to the Mount of Olives. It suggests a couple of things um, that reading that text. Number one, Jesus uh, may, may very well have slept outdoors that night. In other words, um, and I think we've seen it throughout the scriptures, we find that Jesus uh, at times would, in one sense, be homeless. Of course, we know he was traveling, and sometimes people would open up their doors to him. But isn't it interesting how Jesus said in Matthew eight nineteen through 20, where a certain scribe came and he said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, uh, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So they went to their house, but it says Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And I just, um, I'm just so amazed, again, looking just at Jesus, how the one who inhabits heaven, who sat on the throne, came down to, to rescue and save us. And in the process, there were times, man, where he had to bundle up on a bench or sleep on a rock or... In one sense, he was homeless. So they went to their house. He went to the Mount of Olives, not just because he was homeless, but primarily because um, he probably wanted to spend some time in prayer. You know, John 18, 1 through 2, it reveals the fact that he would often go here. He would meet with his disciples, but he would also meet with his father. You guys know that, huh? Later we would read how in the Garden of Gethsemane he would be there and he'd pray before the cross. They knew exactly where Jesus would be because Judas knew that was the place that they would meet frequently. And so everybody goes to their house. Jesus don't have a house. Jesus goes to their Garden of Gethsemane, no doubt, to spend the night there, and he no doubt spends some time in prayer. And so we read in John chapter 8, again, uh, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning, and so this is the first appearance of light in the sky. He came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. And so when you read that in the Bible, just in case you guys didn't know that, it's like an idiom, it's a description. Whenever it was early in the morning, uh, they would rise early in the morning, the prophets would rise early. It was because there was an eagerness there. It wasn't just that Jesus was a morning person. It, there was an eagerness in this, right? And what we find is that the Lord had that heart. He was eager to teach the people. You know, Matthew twenty six fifty five. it speaks of the fact that when Jesus was in Jerusalem, he taught daily in the temple. As a matter of fact, I think it's safe to say that Jesus' uh, three-and-a-half-year ministry in that, his primary task was teaching the people. And I, just as a, as a quick side note, I think it's, it's kind of cool for us to know this. Uh, have you guys ever heard that saying that you learn something new every day? Have you guys ever heard that? 
And I, I think it's true, honestly. Microsoft Word, hey, I didn't know you could do that. Or, you know, you're looking at different things. Um, but isn't it, I mean, to me, I want to learn something new every day from, from Jesus. I mean, he is our teacher that's willing to teach us every single day. Here it says that he sat down. Now, that's not just, you know, to show us his posture in, you know, because he was tired or something. What it meant, it was a formal teaching uh, opportunity. In those days and in that culture, whenever a teacher sat, I mean, that would be teaching. And so we actually have it backwards. I should be sitting, you guys should be standing. That's kind of how they did it back then. But, you know, Jesus, our teacher. I mean, I pray that we would understand this with all of our heart. You know, it's very important for us to know. Like Hebrews 1, it says in verse 1, that God, who in various times and in various ways spoken time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. You know, and here's the, the Lord at the, at the break of dawn, breaking down the word, doing that, that, that task that his Father had given to him to give us truth from the top. You know, Jesus, our faithful teacher, you know, I pray that we would know that that title exclusively belongs to him. You know, Jesus said that in Matthew 23, 8. You, when he's talking to these guys, do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. You know, there might be other individuals that God uses as, as vessels of truth, and vessels to teach, but they are not the sources of truth. They are not the sources of, of teaching. They are not your teachers. Jesus is your teacher. And that's what he says. And that's what we have to see here. I'm blessed that he's eager to teach me. And I just pray that I would never lose a heart of wanting to be taught by him. That I would always, always be teachable. And so there he is. He's teaching uh, in such a beautiful way there in the temple. But, but look at verse 3. It says, And then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, meaning they made her stand front and center before the crowd, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But, but what do you say? And this they said, testing him that they might have something of which to accuse him. Uh, they, they were trying to, to trap him into saying something that they could use against him so that he could be arrested and, and killed. I mean, that's, that, that was where they, they were. And John 8.44 talks about the fact that they were under the influence of the devil, their father, who was a liar and a murderer. And so they bring this woman, uh, imagine that, caught in the very act of adultery. Now, in Jewish law, if you wanted to... Uh, prosecute you would have to catch them in the act of adultery let's just say you saw two people you know whatever going into the house and coming out together wouldn't be enough evidence not in jewish law because this is a heavy 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 indictment they had to catch them in the very act and that's exactly what happened they caught her imagine that and they brought her imagine how humiliated she must have felt there propped up for all to see there in the temple you know, later we're going to see in John chapter 8, verse 20, that they, Jesus was teaching them in the treasury. 
And so what that meant was that this was the court of the women. And so if you were to look at a diagram of the temple back then, you would see in the outskirts, you have the court of the Gentiles, and you get closer, you have the court of the women, where the Jewish men and women were allowed. And then after that, you have the court of the men and then the inner courts. And so basically, this would probably be the most crowded place. All the Jewish men, all the Jewish women, every, they were all there. This is the woman they caught in the very act of adultery. And boom, front and center. Imagine how she must have felt. But this is what's, what's going down here. Now, when you look at this, they said, hey, Moses said that she uh, should be stoned to death. Now, um, this is according to Leviticus chapter 20 in verse 10. It was a capital offense. And, you know, I don't know how you guys feel about that. Like someone caught in adultery, how can the law say that, that she deserved to die? And, you know, you might, you know, question that. Well, let me just share, number one, this I think helps us all. Any sin we do against God deserves death. If you can't handle that, then we don't understand the holiness of God. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. And so this law, um, you know, it, it was clearly articulated. I mean, I don't know if you can imagine a world without adultery. Imagine how beautiful, how, how different, how, how awesome that would be. This is just really, in one sense, God's way of saying, this is how I feel about such a horrible sin, what it does to husbands and wives and children and family and, and the whole world. So, so in one sense, you know, we got to understand that. But, but when you read the Old Testament, you don't really see it uh, happening a whole lot as far as we don't see any examples of someone being put to death for adultery. This is God's way of saying this is, it deserves it. Um, and, and, you know, this is how I feel about it. One time Tamar almost was, uh, you know, burned or, or killed, but it, it didn't happen. But this just goes to show you it was preventative. Imagine, you know, today they say like maybe 40% of, mar- of marriages someone falls into adultery. It's a horrible sin. It really is. Now, when we look at Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 10, it was preventative, of course. But, you know, even though, uh, you know, it wasn't practiced, it was still the law of Moses. It was still the Bible, so to speak. And so what would Jesus say to their question? If Jesus just said, well, leave her alone, you guys, leave her alone, then they would have accused him of being soft on sin, someone who cared nothing about the Levitical law or the Bible. Basically, they could say, you're a heretic if you just said, leave her alone. But if Jesus, on the other hand, simply said, well, stone her, kill her, execute her, not only would he ostracize many of his followers who were mindful of his mercy, remember he had the reputation of being a friend of sinners, but he would then also make himself a violator of the Roman law that prohibited these types of executions for religious violations. And so in one sense, they thought they had him trapped. There was no way out. It was kind of like they were thinking, you know, checkmate, right? And, and, and what's going on right here, you guys? What, what's really going on? There is a spiritual battle that's going on. You know, the devil is trying to take Jesus down. The devil is trying to take this woman down. The devil is trying to take all these uh, judges, all these accusers down. Right? That's what's going on. 
You know, if you were there, guys, some of you guys are a little bit more buff than me, right? And and you were there, and uh, even some of you ladies, man, I, I know you, you got, you know, you got, I don't know if Ghana's is the right word, but you got some, you know. You, you would probably, if someone took and they found this religious Pharisee, some religious Pharisees with all their robes and stuff, and they think they're all, they're so self-righteous, you know, and they go, and they found a girl, and she was caught in the middle of adultery, and they dragged her down, and they put her in front of the church, and they said, hey, what, what would you do? A lot of you guys know what you would do. You would probably sock the people, right? You go up there, and what the heck, man, and you, I don't know, like, to me, it's just so wrong. Or, or maybe you would just get in their face, and you start arguing with them, and and you could probably, I'll bet you almost anything, win that argument, man, because we got so much, you know, to back us up. Who do you think you are? Where's the man? I mean, you name it. We could have gone toe-to-toe with them, right? But in the process, if I was to make this big drama in front of everybody and just call, call sin and just call everything to the carpet, you want to know what would happen is that you might win the argument, but you lose all the people that see all that's going on. And these guys that are, 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 are being, you know, uh, they're, they're kind of like putty in the, in the enemy's hands and, and the woman. And, and, and so what, what the Lord does is it's completely different. What does the Lord do? Well, our faithful teacher is also a wise judge. And so we read in verse 6, uh, the latter portion, it says, but Jesus stooped down... And he wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. It's almost like he ignored it. He ignored it. It's sort of strange, definitely different, right? Um, maybe, you know, sometimes we'll kind of pause. We won't say anything. We're hoping maybe they'll change their mind or come to their senses. They'll stand down. They knew that they were dead wrong, that they were not at all incident, innocent in this incident. But, you know, they just just kept questioning him. So the, the Lord just is down and he's writing on the ground. So a lot of people wonder, what did he write on the ground? Everyone wonders what Jesus was writing. Uh, some say, a lot of commentators say, perhaps he was writing their sins in the dirt. Their sins. And so here's the guys, they got the girl, and then Jesus starts looking up and writing their sins in the dirt. Albert, anger. Stan, he's stealing. Paul, Pride. Ned never prays. Harvey hates. Gary gossips. Barry backbites. If I said your name today, I'm sorry. It wasn't intentional, okay? <laughs> but, but you know, I mean, he could have easily been writing that there, right? And, and at the end of the day, here's the thing that I realized, because I told you guys in the very beginning, what I need the most is forgiveness. Me. He could have wrote any of our names and he could have wrote a whole bunch of sins. Amen? So that's, I don't know if that's what he was writing. Maybe that's what he was writing. All I know is some say, well, maybe he was writing, you know, Jeremiah 17, 13. It says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be ashamed. Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord the fountain of living waters. You know, we want our name written in the book of life. When you give your life to Jesus Christ and you place your faith in him, that's where your 
your, your name is written, it's written in the heavens. But if you don't, if you forsake him, then your name is written in the earth. They knew that. These were scribes. These were Pharisees. And Jesus was there, and maybe he's writing their name. And they're just thinking about that passage. You know, you wonder what he was writing. We also wonder, again, like I mentioned earlier, where was the, the man? If she was caught in the middle of adultery, where was the man, the law commanded that both should be stoned. Um, and so, you know, we read even again in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, the man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. And then later when Moses repeats the law, he kind of emphasizes it. It's got to be both of them. It says in Deuteronomy 22, 22, if a man is found lying with a woman married to a husband, then both of them shall die. The man that lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall put away the evil from Israel. You know, Jesus was wise. He knew the woman had been set up, that she was just a pawn in their game of life and death. They cared nothing about her. He knew that, that she was only a means to an end, that they were after him. And so they come with this whole situation. Well, what would you say, Jesus? And so um, the Lord, who is our faithful teacher, is also a very wise judge. He's writing on the dirt, undoubtedly, and maybe he was doodling, I'm not sure, but it could have been significant. But um, when they continued to ask him, he raised himself up and he said to them this. He said, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And what had happened was he, he turned the tables around and so instead of passing judgment on the woman, he passed judgment on the judge, on the judges. And it's just so beautiful what he ends up doing. Like I said earlier, I mean, and not just judgment, though, I think in one sense, like I said, he was trying to, to reach them. I mean, if I were God, thank God I'm not God. I probably would have killed them all right there, sent them to the pit. I don't like what you're doing to this woman and the way that you're trying to set her up. But you know what? The Lord loved them. And so he kind of, you know, I think in one sense is trying to reach them. I was thinking about the different ways it could have gone down, how Jesus could have just pointed out their sin, asking them, hey, where's the man? What are you guys doing here? I know what's up. It could have been a big drama dragged out. Jesus could have very easily won the argument, but unlike us, he's not interested in winning the argument. Unlike us, he's not interested in proving that he's right, per se. I mean, he was interested not in winning the argument, but in winning the souls to himself. And the Bible says in Proverbs 11.30, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. I like that. And, and he who wins souls is wise. It doesn't say he who wins arguments is wise. No, he who wins souls. And so, you know, God obviously sees so much deeper. And he sees them, and unfortunately, the influences that have uh, controlled their life, he sees her broken heart, he sees all the guilty parties involved, and he knows what to do and what to say in every situation. I don't know about you, but when I see this, I just think, man, Lord, you are so 
wise. And of course, that's to be expected of God, right? Remember the other time they came and they tried to trip him up? They said, hey, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? They thought they had him between a hard rock and a hard spot. And he just said, hey, show me a Daenerys whose image is is on it. And he said, render to God the things that are God, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And so you guys have to pay your taxes. But, you know, the image of God is on us. And it's just so beautiful, just how wise he is. Listen, you guys got, we got impossible situations. We got perplexing questions and things that are going on in our life. And we may think, well, there's no really way out of this. And, and, and all you have to do is ask God. And he'll show you, you know, what to do because he's able you know, to be able to give us the answers in situations that we were thought were, were so impossible. He, he's without sin. This is what the Lord ends up telling them. He's without sin. Uh, let him be the first to cast a stone at her. And, um, you know, real quick, you know, just in case you're wondering, there's probably a couple of things I should mention. Uh, Jesus wasn't saying that we need to be sinless in order to fulfill a judicial bench. You know, with a judge and he hands down the sentence. It doesn't mean that he has to be sinless, uh, whether it be that type of court of law or even in church discipline. It doesn't necessarily mean that. You know, but we do have to ask ourselves questions in the different situations that we find ourselves in. Number one, am I guilty in this sin? You know, sometimes husband and wife can be arguing and maybe the wife says something mean to her husband. And the husband's like, man, woman, I can't believe you would say that to me. You're supposed to be submissive. And, you know, read First Peter chapter 3, 1 through 6, and it says a gentle and quiet and all that kind of stuff, right? And, and, then, and then, you know, well, well, wait a minute, time out. When was the last time you prayed with her? When was the last time you took her out on a date? I mean, I don't know. I mean, do you love her the way that Christ loves the church? See, we got to be careful because sometimes we're wanting to take the splinter out of their eye and there's a big old plank in ours. We're the leaders. So, you know, I think when Jesus is saying he's without sin, he's not talking about being sinless, he's talking about in this situation. Are you blameless? Number two, sometimes we're guilty of the very same sin, and that happens a lot. Remember that time when, you know, Nathan came to David and he gave him this scenario about this guy who had stolen a little sheep and this, you know, man, his next-door neighbor only had one and it was dear to him, and here this mean guy steals it from him. He's got a whole bunch of them. And David was so furious with that, and he said, man, that guy deserves to die. And then Nathan said, you're the man. I mean, we have to be so careful when we're, when we're dealing with these things. Lord, am I, am I guilty in this sin? Am I guilty of this sin? But then the third thing I think that we also need to be careful of, remember, like I said, uh, Jesus uh, didn't judge the woman, he judged the judges. Are you a judge? Are you the Holy Spirit? Some people think they are, and they end up becoming very, very judgmental. Be so careful. You know, Matthew 7, Jesus said some words I think that are helpful to us. If you want to turn there. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, Judge not, in verse 1, that you be not judged. Now, that might be referring to, you know, you don't judge people because they, others might judge you if that's 
the type of person you end up being, but it also might be scarier than that. It might be that you don't judge because otherwise the, God might judge you. Judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you like a boomerang. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye? And look, Jesus said, a a plank is in your own eye. And so he says, hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And I think when you put it all together, it's not that Jesus is saying we can't you know, judge, because there are scriptures that talk about that, but we can't be judgmental and we can't be hypocritical. I think we have to have a heart of, of love and compassion and grace. You know, we're going to talk about that later when we talk about the difference between accusation and information and condemnation and conviction and approaching it in love. But, you know, be careful. Back in John chapter 7, in verse 24, Jesus said, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. So I, I want to mention that. You know, it doesn't mean that there's not judicial benches or church discipline. We just have to be very, very careful on those things. And then and then secondly, I think another thing that I want to mention real quick, I didn't mention in first service, but, um, you know, does that mean that the, the, the death penalty is non-existent for Christians? And, you know, I was just thinking about what our governor has done. It's just so crazy. You know, he's taken away uh, even death row and, and the possibility of justice. I was watching a video yesterday of the father of uh, Polly Klaus, and I guess 25 years ago, uh, that there's these three little girls, and they're having a summer party, and a guy comes in, and, and he, you know, covers two of them, and then he takes one, and he goes, and he kills her. Kills her. And and then what ends up happening is, you know, he gets arrested, clearly convicted of the crime of murder. But now we have a governor who wants to protect him rather than protect the people. So this doesn't mean that the death sentence is not for Christians. Romans 13 says we bear that sword with a purpose. That's what the government has. And, you know, but, 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 but what we're talking about today is, is different. We're talking about a time when this woman is set up. We're talking about, you know, a, a sexual sin. It's completely different. You can't lump it all together. What we're talking about here is something that is so important. And I think we, for all of us, we can relate to it in so many ways. You know, as they come and they say, Jesus, she committed, the, we caught her in the very act. The law says she should be stoned. What do you say and the Lord, you know, just uh, he just says, well, he who is without sin, this is what we need to do in this situation right here, right now. He's without sin among you. Let him be the first to cast that stone. And, and so in, in verse 9, it says, then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst, Imagine that. I mean, to me, when I see this, you know what I see? Victory. Victory. You know, the Lord could have punched them, and they could have punched him. 
And they could have went toe-to-toe and argued and you would have won the argument and lost their souls. Now at least there's hope. Hey, they got, there's something in their conscience. They actually got convicted in their conscience. Uh, the conscience is that moral law written within our hearts. We're all born with it. The Bible says in Romans chapter 2, verse 15, it kind of tells you, you know, right from wrong, generally speaking. And it's good to listen to your conscience. Paul the Apostle said in Acts 24, 16, this being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. I'll tell you what, that conscience, and for us it's hard to figure out, well, is it the Holy Spirit? Once you become saved, you also have the Holy Spirit, you have the Word of God that He brings to your remembrance, but you also have that conscience. And so we don't want to violate that conscience in any way. I mean, for those of you guys, guys, we tend to be more uh, visual when it comes to sexual attraction and things like that. You guys know what I'm talking about when you're scrolling through your phone and you see a girl, she's not dressed right. The cleavage is a little low. What do you do? Your conscience says, don't look. Your conscience says, you don't belong here. Listen to that conscience. Listen to the Holy Spirit. Listen to the voice, the gift that God gives to us. Because if not, if you don't listen, then the Bible says in 1 Timothy 4, 2, that that conscience can get broken, that, that it can get seared. You know, I have this thing on our car, and it, I probably, I don't know how to turn it off. Someone's got to help me, man. But when you go veer into the, the other lane, it beeps, you know. Whenever you get out of the, the lane, and that's kind of like what our conscience is. But praise God for that. You know, that's actually evidence that there is a God because we were born with a conscience, not a clean slate to tell a two-year-old what's right and wrong. And so, you know, the Lord shares these words and thank God their conscience is still functioning and from the oldest to the youngest, they proceed to leave. Why from the oldest to the youngest? Well, because it's usually the older we are, the wiser we are. Right? Usually, not always. Sometimes it doesn't work that way. But the longer you've been living life, the more you know you learn from your mistakes, the more you learn from the mistakes of others, the more you learn the Bible, the more you just learn, you know, how to, you know, live life. I mean, younger guys, they might be a bit more headstrong and in this case probably determined to take Jesus down. You know, but thank God for Jiminy the cricket, you know, that conscience speaks to them and one by one they left, and so that the only one left standing in the vicinity, was the fallen woman. Man, thank God we have a faithful teacher, and thank God we have a wise judge. You know, I was thinking about this, I don't know if you guys have been watching the Olympics. Uh, My son was watching it the other day. He's actually been recording it. And uh, last night when he got home from work, uh, he said, Dad, you got to see this, you got to see this. And uh, he had recorded this uh, race uh, Olympian American Andrew Hill, and, and, and basically it's this uh, event called short track uh, sk- speed skating, and it was kind of cool. Basically, if you see the race, there's four individuals in the race, and the the first, the top two uh, go to the next level, basically. And so um, they were showing the race, and then um, it was kind of cool because this guy right here, Andrew uh, Huo. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly. Um, He was in the last. He was behind. He was fourth the whole time, the whole time. And then at the very end, it was kind of cool, right? Like halfway through, and these are short laps. Right before it ended, 
two guys in front of him fell. And when one guy fell, the other guy stumbled, and that allowed him to go up front and to, and to be able to qualify for the next round. And it was kind of cool because I was like wondering why Aaron was showing me. But then uh, when they replayed the, the, the whole thing, the announcer was describing what was taking place, and she was just so impressed with this young skater because he was, he was kind of like in the, in the place. He was just being patient. He was being patient. And then she said this. She said, I had a chance to talk to this young man personally. And this young man told me, this is the announcer now as they're replaying it in slow motion. She said, this young man told me personally that he gives thanks to God, that this young man is a spiritual man. And she said, and I have a hunch, and she called him the higher power, but we know it's God. She said, I know that, that this young man was patient and that because of that, he didn't freak out. And the next thing you know, he put himself in, the op- in, op- in a place of op- opportunity to win. And as she said that he was patient for God to work things out, as she said that, these other two guys just fell. Boom. Boom. And I, and I feel sorry for the other guys. Don't get me wrong. You know. <laughs> but I, I was just thinking to myself, that's the devil. That's the demons. Because we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers and spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And I was just thinking, Lord, you know, thank you that you love the woman, yes, but you even love these judges. So that you didn't sock them in the face. You didn't argue with them and go toe-to-toe. You just kind of use wise words. And he says, oh, he is without sin. Let him cast the first stone. And in the process, there's hope for everyone. When the woman is left there in verse 10, it says that Jesus raised himself up and, and saw no one but, but the woman. And he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And you might even want to circle the word Lord. I think that's significant. No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. You know, he is a, a faithful teacher. I pray we would know that. And, and he really is a wise judge. This highlights who Jesus is. But he is a, a wonderful Savior. I mean, this woman was on the brink of death. And I think about that a lot. I know you guys are in the same place I'm in. How many dice? How many times could you could have died? How many times we could have died? And I think, Lord, where would I have been? Where would I be right now if I had died? I'd be in hell forever and justifiably so. You know, but here the Lord, he just, it's an illustration of how he saves and it's such a beautiful thing. You know, we find ourselves, and and this is some of the things that we're going to have to deal with in life. You know, where are your accusers, right? And and let me just share a a couple of things real quick in closing. Three things. 
Number one is the accusation, the accusation. And these are just words about our sins. And not that it was a lie, it was true. She was caught in adultery. And so sometimes the accusation doesn't have to necessarily be a lie, it could be true, but it's the way that it was said. The accusation, you know, sometimes uh, they're not true. And the devil will come, Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, and actually it defines him, identifies him as the accuser of the brethren. And we see that in Job, we see that in Zechariah chapter 3. You know, um, that he is the accuser. And so he will come and he will just put thoughts in your mind. He'll be accusing you of things. And some of those things are true. They're failures that we've done in the past. Or sometimes, you know, he'll kind of like color it a little bit. And it's not true. You just have to understand there's a difference between accusation and information. Accusation comes with the devil's heart. But information comes with God's heart. And it says, hey, you know, um, this is something that, that you, yet you did wrong, which kind of leads to the next thing, and that is the Lord here says, where, where are your accused, the accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? Understand, like, from accusation goes condemnation, and, and condemnation, in one sense, is when, you know, you reach the point, you, you don't understand the grace of God, you don't understand the forgiveness of God, you don't understand the blood of Jesus Christ that washes away my sins, that puts me in a place where I'm justified and justified means it's just as if I'd never sinned. This is how God sees us. And the Bible says there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. See, there's a difference between accusation and information. There's a difference between condemnation and conviction. Condemnation says, man, you blew it. You're so bad. You don't even, you shouldn't even go into church. You shouldn't be serving the Lord. You, you should be gone. You should be out of here. That's the devil. He takes you, he says, go away from the cross because you're all messed up. That's condemnation. That's what the devil does. But conviction, what conviction does is says, hey, man, you blew it again. Go to the cross. Get on your knees. Ask God for forgiveness. Ask that person for forgiveness. Get into your Bible. Encourage yourself in the word. You know, get back in fellowship. You know, this is what we have to deal with. The enemy comes. He tries to take us down. But thank God that we have this Savior. is so wonderful. With this woman, he offers forgiveness. And it's a picture really of us, accusation, which can lead to condemnation. But Jesus intervenes with salvation. And then the third word is sanctification. What does he say? Ain't no thing but a chicken wing. He doesn't say that, right? <laughs> Sorry, my wife told me don't say that anymore. I shouldn't say that. <laughs> but, but he's not like, you know, no, what does he say? He says, neither do I condemn you, but he does say, go and sin no more. Go and learn. Leave your life of sin. Later he told the guy in John, I mean earlier in John chapter 5, you know, sin no more. Let's the worst thing come upon you. That's, that's the holy one. That's important for us to understand as well. You know, the Bible says in Romans 5.20, and moreover the law entered that the offense might abound, and that's why we have the scriptures that tell us so much of a sinner we are, but he says, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. In other words, in the Greek, it's super abounded. So we've sinned, but man, the grace it just covers. It's like this ocean. It's like if you can visualize you, you're the sinner and the, and the ocean. 
is God's grace to cover you. And so he says, hey, where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. But then when you go to Romans chapter 6, it says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And the Bible says, certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? I always tell you guys, we use a grace, we use grace, but we don't abuse grace. That grace that washes away my sins, and you know, because I fail so many times in every role I have as a husband, as a dad, as a son, as a friend, as a pastor, I fail. I fail. I fall short in my prayer life. And I can give you guys a million things. A million things. But God's forgiven me. I know that he's forgiven me. But it, whenever I talk to the Lord about it, it doesn't necessarily mean, well, that I can just go ahead and do it. He also changes me. And that's my prayer is that, that I, I would grow. What's probably the most famous verse in the Bible? What would you guys say? It's 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But we should not stop there. Because it says in verse 17, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Not condemnation, but but salvation. This is what God wants. And how does he do it? It's just so beautiful. And I hope you guys probably are in the same place as me. What's our greatest need? Forgiveness. Amen? You guys really need it, man. (laughs) We need forgiveness. Are you forgiven? Are you really forgiven? Is that how strong the blood of Jesus is to wash away our sins and make us white as snow? Is that true? So does that then give you the license to go ahead and sin? What does it do to us? It changes us. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. I could have died. Thank you, Lord. You know, that's the one thing I think, you know, that stands out above all others. I was just thinking, and I'll just close with this. Some of you guys probably saw the funeral, um, the memorial service for Billy Graham is such a beautiful evangelist that went home to be with the Lord not too long ago. And uh, his daughter, it's a beautiful story, his daughter uh, Ruth, I think she's also known as Bunny, uh, she went up and she shared. And she's like, you know, everybody has a Billy Graham story. Everybody does. And she shared really just one story about her daddy. And she said, you know, it's something that, it was heavy on her heart. And this is how she remembered her dad. She said that she got married, and she, after 21 years of marriage, it ended in divorce. Um, she said after that, that, she floundered as a Christian, and the, the rug was pulled from underneath her feet, and she struggled. And so she tried to put her life back together, and she went up, and she moved closer to her sister, and Next thing you know, she, she meets a guy in church, but he wasn't a good guy. And what ends up happening, as she said, is that, um, you know, they started, you know, getting into it fast and furious in their relationship with God. But her, her children, now they're a little older, they knew he wasn't a good guy, and they told her, but they, she said, what do you know? You know, what, what do you, she wouldn't listen to her children. And then her mom uh, called her from Seattle, and Miha, don't, don't do that. Oh, she probably didn't say Miha, but she probably said <laughs> Ruth, uh, sweetheart, you know. Um, 
<laughs> you know, we don't know this guy. Let's get to know this guy. You guys are moving too fast. And then, um, you know, Billy Graham, her dad, called her from Hong Kong. He said, no, we, you're moving too fast. We need to get to know this guy. It's not a good thing. But she didn't listen to anybody. And next thing you know, New Year's Eve, she said she went and got married. And she said it took 24 hours for her to realize that she had made a mistake. You know, five weeks later, uh, she left him. And what she said is, I had to, to go home to my mom and dad. And she said, and I, and I found out it's, it was a two-hour drive. And so it's imagine for, I mean, I'm sorry, two hours, two-day drive. And so she has to go um, drive you know, for two days to return home to her mom and dad. And she said, all these thoughts are, are going through her mind as far as what her, her daddy's going to say to her. Because she was just thinking, every girl doesn't want to embarrass her dad, but especially when your dad's Billy Graham. <laughs> What's he going to say? I told you so. What did we, we, we warned you? What, what are they going to say? And she just said, is this so beautiful? You know, as they, two days, she finally, you know, gets to the mountain and she's winding up the mountain and it's a long driveway. And as she's there with all the guilt, with all the shame, with all the failure, because she felt like a failure. She said her daddy was there in the driveway. She got out of the car and he just put his arms around her. He said, welcome home. That's all she said. That's all he said. And you know, for us, it's the same thing, you know, um, making our way back to God and we're thinking, well, maybe I'll be a second class citizen or, you know, things aren't going to work out too well because I've blown it so much. And But when we have that heart, you know, he's my Lord, I'm going to go home, I'm going to, you know, repent of my sin, you know, let him be the one to lead and guide my life. That's all he says. No shame, no condemnation. She said, just unconditional love. She said, my, my dad wasn't God. She said, but he showed me that day what God is like. Understand that, you guys. If we could come to this place of just understanding his forgiveness, his grace, who he is, you know, he's the Holy One. And I think it's a life-changing experience. You know, you guys have probably seen that graphic. You know, my greatest need is forgiveness, right? And so we have this graphic. One cross plus three nails is forgiven. Have you guys seen that before? You have it. That's how it happens. It's not, well, you just cheap grace. No, he died for us. He rose again. And as we embrace Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we can be forgiven.